today on Filmmaker Freedom, an in-depth interview with Naomi McDougall-Jones. Now, Naomi is a two-time feature filmmaker, an actress, a producer, a speaker, an author, and probably some other things. She's one of those people who are just crazy multi-talented and do a lot of things. But the reason that I really wanted to bring Naomi on was she is one of the most transparent, vulnerable, honest people when it comes to the distribution and marketing of indie feature films. And if you need proof of that, look no further than a web series she took part in called The Joyful Vampire Tour of America, where she basically rented out an RV and toured the U.S. for three months, putting on these small, local, intimate screenings of her film, Bite Me. All the while, she's documenting the strategy, how much money they're making, and basically just sharing a lot of real, honest, transparent lessons about the not-so-flattering reality of making indie films these days. The series is one of the best things I've seen online in a long time, and if you haven't seen it yet, I really recommend watching it before diving into this because it will give you some good context. But even if you haven't watched it yet, this is one of the best interviews that I did in 2020, and we get really into the weeds on how you put on local screenings and four-walling and renting out theaters, how you craft an experience that is so unique that people actually want to come and open their wallets and pay a premium for it, how to target specific audiences, how much they made on the digital and TVOD and SVOD side of distributing their film, and so much more. It really is an insightful conversation where we get into the weeds. And uh, yeah, I hope you dig it. Hey friend, welcome to Filmmaker Freedom. This is a show for ambitious indie filmmakers who want to make work they're proud of, build audiences, cut out the middlemen, and earn a damn good living selling directly to their fans. My name is Rob Hardy, and I'm a filmmaker and a marketing consultant who's worked with a number of brands and startups to help them connect with online audiences and grow their businesses. Now, in the solo episodes of this show, I like to share direct lessons that I've learned from that experience and help you build an audience and sell your films. But truth be told, my perspective is far from the only one. That's why I like to balance those shows out with long-form interviews with other entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. The goal is to share conversations that are really substantive, inspiring, and genuinely honest and transparent because there's just not enough transparency in the world of indie film, especially when it comes to the business side of things. And one last thing before we begin, I just wanna thank my good friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. Over the years, I've used just about every music licensing platform out there, and I can say without hesitation that Music Vine is at the very top of my list. The quality and uniqueness of the music are outstanding. The prices are reasonable, and the design and functionality of their website are second to none. It's just a pure pleasure to use. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. All right, now let's get into today's interview. Naomi McDougall-Jones, thank you so much for being here on Filmmaker Freedom. Thank you so much for having me. So I like to 
start these conversations with essentially what amounts to silly icebreaker questions, just so we can. <laughs> Yeah, like it's like it's just a bad team building exercise, essentially. Love that. Okay. Um, so you, yeah, you game. Let's uh, let's start with an easy one. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, I had my favorite breakfast. I had um, granola and yogurt and blueberries. Oh, I just, that I ate that minus the granola like twenty minutes oh, ago. So good. Mm, also, great. I have recently gotten into making homemade granola, which is so far superior to store-bought granola it's not even funny how do you do that like what goes what goes it's really easy you just put oats and honey and a little bit of canola oil or some kind of vegetable oil and like a little cinnamon and some almonds if you want and you just stir that together put it on a baking sheet put it in the oven for like 25 minutes and that's it that is really easy I That's think, super I, easy. I think it's possible that even I would uh, not mess that up. So go <laughs> Rob. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, question two. What is the last film, movie, show, uh, a piece of media more generally that just knocked your socks off, just really, really impressed you? Mm, that's easy. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Ooh, I haven't seen that one. Where? Uh, oh, where is that? So good. It's on Hulu now. It wasn't... It wasn't um, anywhere online for a long time, but it is on Hulu now. Nice. What'd you, what'd you love about it? Um, it's like one of very few movies I've ever seen where I feel like the female gaze was on full display. And it, it like made me think about all of the cinema that we have lost from the female gaze and also all the cinema that we have yet to enjoy from the female gaze in the future. Third question. If you could go back and give young Naomi as she embarks on her career of like writing and producing and acting and speaking and you do so many things. Um, (laughs) But like if you could give yourself one piece of advice to prepare yourself for the journey ahead, what would you what would you say? It's not going to look anything like what you think it will look like and for all. And in all of those ways, it will make it more awesome. So like, don't cling so tightly to what you think you want. Yeah, that would have, uh, that one piece of advice probably would have saved me like three or four years of um, total heartbreak and Mm. like depression as I was clinging to, not even to something that I I really truly wanted, but to something I thought I should want based on what everybody was doing around me and telling me how I I should approach being a filmmaker. Um, And as soon as I like let go of that and started figuring out how to do things on my own terms based on my own values, like it, like it just started to get better and it started to, I don't know, I don't know. And I, I think that's probably true for most artists of all stripes because you usually decide on these dreams when you're really young and there are all these people around you grown up sort of telling you what that means and like what the success markers are and so you it's very easy to buy into that for a long time and that but but you're right like that moment when you finally can release that is such a a thing of liberation and of like that's when it gets good, I think. Yeah, it's catharsis, and then yeah. it is it is it it is at first, and then you realize that the work is just as hard, but it's slightly more meaningful than it was before. 
Oh, which, way more meaningful. And at least you're not trying to please an arbitrary set of gatekeepers by an arbitrary set of rules that old white dudes decided on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Amen to that. So I don't know. Let, let's start at the beginning. And I'm, I'm just curious how you how you came to to be whatever whatever the hell it is you are today because you do so <laughs> so so many things and they're so multi-talented um so maybe like just like the twenty thousand foot view of um how you sort of put all of these pieces together sure um yeah i i i feel like my career has been like that that magician's trick where somebody hands you a handkerchief and says, here, pull this handkerchief out of the hat. And then like that handkerchief is connected to another handkerchief. And, like the handkerchiefs just keep coming. I feel like that sort of describes the whole thing. But basically um, from the time I was really young, I wanted to be an actress. That was my main life goal. Um, so I went to uh, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City for college and graduated from there and hit the pavement determined to be the next Meryl Streep and then um, very quickly started getting pretty disillusioned with both life as an actress and the sort of predatory predatory milieu that one is placed in as a young actress and also just the complete lack of interesting roles for, for women. Um, like I would routinely find myself auditioning against 300 other incredibly talented women to play like Naked Corpse Number Five, or the really supportive girlfriend, or <laughs> the stripper with a heart. And it just like after a couple of years of that, I was just like, "This is not what I came here to do." I I want you know I wanted to be an actress because I wanted to tell stories that I believe in and that care about and that can change the world, and that's not what's happening. Um, so naively I thought that the problem must just be that nobody was writing great roles for women so I thought well I can write great roles for women <laughs> and so with a friend um, actually from acting school she and I decided to make our first feature film um, ha having no real experience we basically had film school by coffee date we just created a spreadsheet of all of the uh, film producers that we could find in New York City and just started cold calling them and emailing them and asking them if they would have coffee with us and tell us how to make a movie um, and sort of enough of them said yes that we that we started to piece it together and so we we raised eighty thousand dollars and made my first feature film imagine i'm beautiful um, which came out in 2014 and then um, two things sort of happened as a result of that movie one of which was that i knew i wanted to be a filmmaker for the rest of my life like being on set that first day and seeing you know, a hundred grownups run around and build this world and these characters and these props that I had written just because I had written them <laughs> on a page in my living room was like discovering that you're a wizard. It was like getting your, your Hogwarts letter in Harry Potter. <laughs> so it was just magic. Um, and so, so from that point on, I, I started writing more and, and made my second feature film, Bite Me, which came out in 2019. And then uh, the second thing that happened out of Imagine I'm Beautiful was that um, I, the, 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 other, the other penny dropped and I realized the unbelievable depth of sexism that exists in Hollywood. And um, because routinely during making Imagine I'm Beautiful, 
people would say to us things like, uh, well, girls, you know that you're going to need to get a male producer on board at some point just so that people will trust you with their money. And just out loud in a meeting in 2011. Um, and, and sort of this endless refrain of nobody wants to see films about women, you're going to have to make something else. Um, and I just couldn't believe that, that, that we were just having these, not only that that sexism existed, but that it was so commonplace and comfortable that people would just say these things out loud in meetings to us, like they were just sort of explaining the way the world worked to us. That's mind boggling. Um, mind boggling. And so from that, I, I developed this second career as a speaker and activist and eventually author for um, trying to get more women and everybody who isn't a non-white straight cis-able-bodied man into the film business um, in front of and behind the camera. Um, so I, uh, on that, in that line of work, I ended up doing a TED talk in 2016 that went viral and a million people watched it in three months and it was very exciting. And then that led to a book deal. So I, my first book just came out in a month and a half ago called The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. Uh, which is about everything I just talked about. Yeah, I love it. Did your did your book tour uh, were you able to like finish it out, or did this whole <laughs> coronavirus mess just uh, derail um, that too? So I I was very lucky, and I got through most of it before things really hit the fan. Um, I, I had to sort of cancel or modify my last three events, but I'd gotten through two weeks of the tour before nice. that, so I was very lucky. That's killer. And you also, I've since discovered, since um, sort of immersing myself in your world a little bit more, that you do a, <laughs> a lot of the the same stuff that I've that I've come to, which is um, coaching and giving back through you know doing like low cost workshops yeah. and just sharing a lot of what you've you've learned along the way. So it's it's again, you do so much. It's uh, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's. Uh... It is a lot, but, but I, but that teaching thing feels really important. And, and I think the the thing that ties the two sides of my career together, the, my own career as a filmmaker and also the, the activism stuff is I think what we're, we're going to talk about today, which is that fundamentally Hollywood is a system built to keep women and people of color out. Um, 95% of all of the studio films that you've ever seen were directed by men and overwhelmingly white men. And that's just unacceptable. And so I think if like, particularly for us, we have to find ways around the system. We have to invent new modes and new models and new ways of making and distributing films, because if we don't, our stories aren't going to be heard or seen. Um, Absolutely. And, and, even if they are made through the system, through the man, as it were, <laughs> very often they wouldn't find the people that most need them, the people that most, right. um, they would most resonate with those stories. Like it's, it's just such right, a, because the, yeah. right. Yeah. Because, because if somehow you manage to get your film made that you're, it, it will get less marketing dollars simply because it has a female director, because it has a female lead, you know, it, it, it's, uh, all a very complex system in there to promote white men's voices above everybody else um and it's not that that that's an invalid perspective at all right it's just like that's white men make up about 30 percent of the u.s population and that the rest of us make up 70 percent we have a lot of really important stories to tell yeah absolutely so i'm curious about the 
the distribution side of your first feature? Because I, I remember watching Joyful Vampire. And for anybody who hasn't seen um, this series on YouTube who's listening, um, it's quite possibly the best thing related to the indie film business that's anywhere on the entirety of the internet, like full oh stop. Oh my goodness, that's, that's a bold statement. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I don't know. Like I've been so immersed in the world of indie film distribution and there's there's so little concrete information especially in regards to financial transparency like that's the big one and people sharing what works and what doesn't and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work or stuff that worked 10 years ago that now doesn't move the needle even the slightest yeah um but what i was saying before was you mentioned that like in the first two weeks of your actual tour while you were you know which we'll talk about like what this actually was in your your like decked out vampire rv which is (laughs) just so awesome um, but you made more in like your first couple of screenings than you did from the entirety of your your first feature, which got a traditional distribution deal. I, so I could I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about a little bit about that, I guess. Yeah. So that right. So this is bananas. So w- when we made our first feature film, Imagine I Beautiful, which I mentioned, which we which we made for eighty thousand dollars, we were nobody like. We had no name actors in the film, no no sort of known quantities associated with the film in any way. It was an inc- it was a totally scrappy upstart deal, um, and a film about two women, which <laughs> distributors traditionally look down on. But sort of miraculously, we did get a distribution deal in two thousand fourteen, and it was through a traditional distributor and they they even gave us a 10 city theatrical release in addition to a distribution and in addition to a digital distribution release and um i mean it, we felt like cinderella like this seemed cuz you know how unlikely it is that a film like that would get a distribution deal at all um and so yeah, like it just seemed like, well, we've made it. Like this is this is the thing that all filmmakers want. This is the thing we've been told to chase. Um, and there were satisfying things about that release, but um, in the six years since that film has come out, we have to date received slightly under $5,000 back from the distributor mm-hmm. um, from that film. Any money up and front? It, pardon? Was there any money? Did you guys get an MG? No, no. I mean, 5,000 total, Um, which is better than some filmmakers do, but uh, was pretty stunning. And and it's not because we had a bad distributor. It's not because they were um, sketchy or dishonest. They weren't. They were actually one of the few honest distribution companies, but that's what happened. And so, so, yeah, so when it came time to release Bite Me, my producing partner, Sarah Wharton, who had also had a very similar experience with traditional distributors with her her other first feature films, we just looked at each other and we're like, we're 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 not going to throw this film into that same system, like that where even if you win, it results in bad outcomes. Like that's just a that then clearly that system is broken, um, and so we decided to self distribute through this Joyful Vampire Tour of America. But yes, um, in the first, I believe, three screenings, we made over $5,000 from ticket sales alone. It's it's mind-boggling, but it just just goes to show that so many of of the assumptions that we make about how to actually earn money on the back end of a film are are wrong, or, or they 
they might have been right at, at one point in time, you know, the mid 90s when everybody was you know, right. gung ho about indie film and, you know, um, but yeah. The, but, the, the, well, and ahead. to your point, there's just so little information at all. You know, it's just, just sort of like when I talk to filmmakers, what I mostly find is that there's just kind of like this vague notion that you what you must do is submit to film festivals because that's what you do. And then somehow out of that equation, you might get lucky and get a distribution deal. And if you do, then all of your problems will be solved. And that is just not true for basically anybody. And it, what's what's even more worrying about this to me is like a lot of people still believe that just getting a distribution deal and any distribution deal should be the end game because, you know, that's the that's the narrative we've been sort of living by for the last 20 or 30 right. years in this community. But the what's what's crazy to me is that it's actually so much easier to get a distribution deal now right. on, on account of the fact that distributors are are struggling their asses off to figure out how to how to make money in this new ecosystem. Right. So they're acquiring the rights to as many films as possible yep. on as predatory as terms as possible with no money yep. up front with insanely long terms. Like I saw one the other the other day that was 15 years, which oh, God, oh. God damn. It's which, insane. <laughs> which I'm sure your listeners know this, but can I just interject why that is such a terrible please, ter- please term to take? Because on. um because the problem is that that the distribution landscape is so fucked for indie film right now that distributors cannot stay in business. Like they are coming in and out of existence like popcorn. And so the problem is that even if you get a deal with the greatest distribution company and they really are honest and they're going to do a good job, the chances that they will be in business five years later are so tiny that if you sign a 15-year contract with them, what will most likely happen is during that term, they will go out of business, at which point either they will go into bankruptcy and your film will be seized by the bankruptcy court and your and future proceeds of your film will go to pay off the distribution company's biggest creditors, which are not you. Or in a slightly better scenario, the distributor, as they go out of business, will sell their their remaining titles to a different distribution company that may or may not be any good. Like this happened with Imagine I'm Beautiful. So again, like I said, we had a good distribution company originally, but they went out of business and they they sold their titles to another distribution company who has now had our film for a one and a half years. Um, it is still up on platforms. It is still making money, but they have not sent us a single check or sales report in the entire time that they've had it. And have just stopped returning our phone calls. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think I was, t- I think it was Alex Ferrari who was talking about who you have a great interview with, um, with him as well. Um, but one of his, one of his, like, firmest pieces of advice when negotiating any kind of distribution contract is to, if if you can't get a clause in there that rights revert back to you in the uh, event of bankruptcy, then don't do it. Run, yeah. run for the hills. Yeah. And he, like he, even then, like. Even if you get that, you're still very likely screwed. But in in the event that that happens, like at least you have some semblance of control over over this project that you likely spent well, a year or two or three it, on. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it should be bankruptcy and or going out of business because you can go out of business without bankruptcy. Um, but yeah, I mean, so luckily with Imagine and Beautiful, they went out of business in year four of a six year contract. So we've 
which now expires in August. So we've, we've sort of been getting screwed over for two years, but at least it's ending soon. But if we had 15 year contract, we would be dead. Mm-hmm. That's madness, man. So that obviously informed the, like, like the whole journey that you undertook with bite me, which let's just talk about bite me. Like what, what is bite me all about? Cause it's such a, <laughs> it's such a great film just from a conceptual conceptual standpoint. It's got such a great hook. So Thanks. Um, Yeah, it's a subversive romantic comedy about a real life vampire and the IRS agent who audits her. So this might be a good time. So I have um, a (laughs) grand a grand theory of marketing that I'm sort of that I'm sort of working on as it relates to how to get indie films in front of audiences who will actually give a shit and get them in front of audiences in a way that will cut through the noise of the million billion things that are competing for people's attention these days and the essence of it is that we need to be able to tap into the identity groups that come into formation online Mm -hmm. and it sounds like you sort of just intuitively got into this where there's actually this real life subculture of people who identify as vampires or or with vampires in some way. Like there's one of the guys in the joyful vampire who had his like teeth sharpened and like, that's just his teeth now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's, it's, it's this legitimate subculture and I have no idea how big it is of people who identify so strongly with, with this concept um, that they, they come together, they, they do all this stuff. They likely have groups online, which I'm sure you know about, but they, it seems like this community came out in droves for this film and watching, watching like, cause you did a great job of interviewing people, like interviewing people after all these live screenings you did and hearing again and again, especially from people who are, you know, dressed up in like full garb and like capes <laughs> and all like all the, all the wacky shit. That's just so awesome. Um, but like one of the recurring themes there was like, I feel like this film really saw me it validated me on a core level in a way that no other vampire film ever has. Yeah. And that's, that's really at the core of what I'm trying to do with this um, identity marketing thing is like, how can we tap into all of these, these subcultures that kind of just form organically? And yeah, because there's so, so many of them. There's so many different ways that people identify, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's by their role in life as fathers, mothers, sons, whatever, whether it's by their values, whether it's their interests and their fandoms, there's a million different ways that you can um, like slice and dice this. And so many of those groups are online. They're engaged. They're looking for content. They're looking for ideas. They're looking for community. And so few of those those communities have films in them. So it's just this... Um, I promise I'll get off my soapbox here in a second. And like no, no. Well, if, if I could just jump in on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, please do. I, I, I totally agree with you. Although I, I will say that the, the number of, of like the, the, the community of real vampires themselves is, is a small, I mean, it's actually, it's a bigger community than you would think it was. And, and we met vampires in a way larger number of states than I anticipated, but um, it's still a small enough group that I don't think like they by themselves would be a a huge money-making venture for a film but but I but what the core of what you're saying is right and I think the core of what bite me speaks to is feeling outside of society for whatever reason 
And, you know, there, there are characters in the film, like the lead guy who isn't a vampire, but also feels very outside. And it's sort of, the whole film is sort of about like, how do you, how do you as an outsider find the courage to be yourself anyway? Um, and like risk judgment and, and how do we be, behave more kindly towards each other since we're all just actually a bunch of weirdos trying to get through the day? Like, how do we, how do we do that? So, so really, I would say that the niche identity group that the film was speaking to was outsiders. Yeah. Um, and because that is a much broader, it's a, it's a niche audience, but it's a broader, it's a far broader audience. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's one that like, like when I hear that, cause like, so I, I come from a, a marketing background and like, I, I was initially interested, like I spent years in film school and then got disillusioned by that and went to work in marketing and have oh. since, and have since, cause you know, it seemed like the responsible grown up person thing to do. And, <laughs> and it was like, I, I learned a lot of great shit and eventually had this realization of like, Hey, wait a minute. All of this stuff that I do for clients is applicable to films. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially like watching the rest of the distribution infrastructure kind of collapse beneath itself and screw filmmakers at every step along the way. Like I, like that has kind of become my calling is like, how can I translate what I've done yeah. as a marketer into, um, into the film world? And, but to get back to what I was like, th this idea of like outsiders being a niche, like it, it's great. But then comes the question of how do you specifically get in front of outsiders? Where do the just quote unquote outsiders come together in a context where they're looking for um, for content specifically about that or around those themes. And that that gets into like a trickier, a much, much trickier area. Um, well, sort of, although so we we identified sort of our core audience as the mega nerds. And we say yeah. that very lovingly of course. <laughs> as card carrying mega nerds ourselves. Um, but uh, so, so we identified a couple of key um, marketing threads. So for instance, Harry, like de extreme devotion to Harry Potter. Um, and this happened to work exceptionally well because our, our lead guy played Tom Riddle in the Harry Potter movies. So, so that was, that was a good hook for that audience. But we also just from like a marketing perspective felt like people who were in, for instance, Harry Potter fan clubs probably would feel like outsiders and would probably like our movie. So that proved to be a really useful cipher because that is a bigger community of people than vampires. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, it's like starting with that, that insight of, of out, outsiderness, outsider yeah. dumb. I don't know what you'd call it, but and then, and then essentially looking for subgroups within that that you could specifically target. Yes. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yes. And and as you say, like, what are the subgroups that specifically gather on online forums? Yeah. Yeah. The other the other interesting thing that I, I saw watch like watching Joyful Vampire, um, and the, they sort of gave me pause was the five hundred thousand dollar budget. Cause again, talking to Alex, like Alex and I are very much in like with his his film entrepreneur, which that just has too many syllables. Every time I say yeah. it, I'm like, <laughs> um, but this this idea of keeping budgets as, as low as humanly yeah. possible, which I know so many filmmakers are are not on board with that because, you know, we've we've been again conditioned to think that bigger and bigger budgets are are essential for what we want to do. And it's it's kind of a sense of validation. Um but then there's then there's the the back end of it again, if you're self-distributing and the idea of being able to move as many units as you need to to 
make your investors whole on a $500,000 budget and then get make yourselves whole and hopefully have an income stream in perpetuity on this film, the economics of it are very, very challenging, as I'm sure you yeah. know. Yeah, um, they are. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like we're all kind of in this mass phase of experimentation, or at least those of us who are thinking cleverly about it, or like who are thinking outside of the box about it are, right? I mean, one of the things that I care about is not only finding a way to make films sustainably, but to make them in a way where people get paid sustainably to make them. Um, so, so the 500,000 budget was really about that, like paying ourselves and people living wages um, and, and trying to see if there's a way to do that and then also make our investors whole. Um, I will say that there has been a surprise twist ending since the tour um, in that we then, after the tour, because we had all this audience data and we had sort of demonstrated and built that there was this audience for this film, suddenly we had six offers from sales agents and distributors um, within the system. And so we ended up um, partnering up with a sales agent, Therese Linden Cohn from Talk Global Media, who um, so far seems to be like one of the only honest sales agents in existence. She's great. Um, and, and, and we talked to a lot of past filmmakers who had worked with her and every one of them said that they would bring their next film to her, which again is not something I'd ever heard people say about a sales agent before. So I was like, yeah, okay. Me neither, not, not once. Well, uh, we'll like this woman a try. Yeah, you found a unicorn. Um, so she is currently in the process of selling our international rights and also uh, TV and other ASFAD deals domestically. Um, so will we make our full budget back? I don't know, but we will at least get closer. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. How, um, how'd you go about raising 500 grand? Uh, <laughs> one investor meeting at a time. Yeah. Um, it took, let's see, it took really three years of hardcore hustling to, to, to raise enough to get through production. Um, and then we, we made the decision to go into production without post-production money, counting on the fact that we would be able to raise the post-production money once we had footage to show people. Cause one of the hurdles to raising money for this film was that it, it really is a film that is tonally unique to itself. Like it, you can't, it's, it's impossible to say, oh, it's, it's kind of like this film or, you know, it's just like, it's its own thing, which we always knew was what it would make, make it a great film, but it's hard to explain to people who maybe don't know how, don't know, know how to read screenplays or sort of like whatever. So, so we did that. And then fortunately that panned out and we were very quickly able to raise the rest of the post-production money um, after we were out of production. But yeah, it was about three years of of fundraising. Yeah. Did you, did you crowdfund it all for this one? We did. Um, that was actually what we did first, um, to get post-production started. Nice. So I wouldn't ever recommend this, but we basically got out of production and went straight into a crowdfunding campaign, which was, exhausting. Um, oh psychically God. exhausting, yeah. but, yeah. but yeah. actually was very effective because whereas with most crowdfunding campaigns, you're start, you're kind of starting from the, the basement level and trying to build excitement because there had just been 21 days of 
photos from set and like all this excitement, we rate we were able to raise thirty five thousand dollars, which I think is is on the high end for a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. Um, for a film, so I'm curious. So think, you, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm no, no. curious. Um, I'm curious if you if there was a connection between the again like the identity group or the like these specific market segments that you were able to target, um, and the I guess efficacy of your crowdfunding campaign because like that that again is like one of the like one of the core assertions for me is that if you find a group of people who specifically want content about a thing. Yeah. Um, it dramatic, like, not only do you know how to, like, should you know how to reach them and what to say to, you know, get them, get them stoked about something. Um, but you dramatically increase the odds that they're, they're going to want to invest, um, or I guess invest isn't necessarily the right word. Right. Um, but to, to bring a project to life, if it will again, validate their identity. So I, I guess I'm well, curious if you, if that's so this, your experience this was, there. This, yeah. That was a sticky wicket for this film, particularly because, the vampire community was actually very, very cagey about me writing or making this film ahead of time. Interesting. Um, because I, I am not a member of that community and um, they didn't know me. And I think they've had a lot of terrible media experiences where somebody comes to them and says that they're going to be respectful and portray them accurately or whatever, and then end up making fun of them um, or, or making them look absurd. And so, although I approached members and said, you know, like, I, I'm not going to make fun of you. The film is a comedy, but, but it actually is inc- very respectful of your point of view and whatever. They didn't trust. I, I didn't get a, a, a big response ahead of time. Um, so I had to do my research for the film without doing interviews there was a fortunately a lot of material to pull from youtube from blogs from um some books that that the community has written and has been written about them so i did a huge amount of research but not in one-on-one interviews so they they didn't really get excited about the film until i think really the trailer came out and they could see that it was um not only respectful but very accurate um to their experiences. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. But I do want to point out the fact that you, it sounds like you went out of your way to, I guess, just honestly portray them on screen. Um, not, not to, not to make caricatures of people, but to, to, I don't know, just display this, this identity group in all of its glory. And that's so important. It seems to me. Well, it's so important. And, and I think, Anytime you're writing about a group, an identity group that you are not part of, it, it is your responsibility to go far, far, far out of your way to make sure that you're getting it right. Um, yeah. So, amen. amen to that. And that's also like when I'm trying to advise people on or like consulting with people on niche, like going with a niche audience, it, I'm almost always universally like start with groups that you're a part of. It is going to yeah. make so much of everything else that comes later easier on you. But if yeah, you, if, you choo- sure. if you choose a group just because you think it looks, just because you think it looks lucrative, just because it, you think it's a big ass audience and it'll be profitable for you, but you're not a member, you are setting yourself up for so much pain unless you're unless you're very very careful and respectful. And usually, if they're going after it because they think it's lucrative, like the battle is is already lost there. So. 
Yeah, and I think it's also just even knowing about how to speak their language once you are, market, are, are marketing. And I will say that I think we did less well with sort of vamp, like hardcore vampire film fan club groups, which are also a big niche online presence than we did with um, Harry Potter groups because we ourselves were more authentically aligned with the Harry Potter group people. Um, so I, so I think part of that comes out in the aesthetic of the film and, and maybe appeals to that group more, but also like, I just felt like when we were posting in those Harry Potter fan club groups, I knew what to say yeah. and I knew how to say it. And it, I knew, I, I could see that we looked like outsiders in the vampire. Yeah, in the hardcore exactly. There's some weird, like metaphysical law of the universe or some shit where people like even in the online context where all the walls are up, like you're communicating through like text and, and images and whatnot, people can still sense that you are not one of them. Like there's totally. just like spidey, yeah. spidey senses that people have. Well, and it's, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's got to be like in little, the littlest details, things that you would never know about unless you know about, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And that's, and that's the stuff that builds that builds trust and why you got to do right. that research ahead of time. So you can have this, this vocabulary or like this, this dictionary of, of like, where, where do these people hang out online? What kinds of topics do they care about? What's the insider language that nobody else in the world would know except for these people? Um, yeah. Like what are the dates they care about? Like what are the things they buy? Like there's so much that you can get into in this research that'll help you. It, it, it comes down to speaking their language and then just creating something that is so specific and so resonant with them that there's no way in hell they would choose anything else in the marketplace other than what you've made. And that's it's kind of a tall order. But again, like with the media ecosystem right now, where there are like 10,000 new high quality things released yeah. every single day, you have to go above and beyond for a specific group to to stand out in any kind of meaningful way, or at least that's that's my perspective on it. Like, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, marketing right now is impossible. <laughs> so I I I agree with you that yeah, yeah. I agree with you. And it, it's interesting because I think it's it's impossible when you're competing against the likes of Disney and Netflix and Hulu with their eleven gazillion dollar marketing budgets. But given that they're aiming at the mass market and saturating the mass market and some of like maybe the downstream quote unquote niche, niches, um, there's there's so much competition there. But like I think there's so little competition in so many of these these smaller these smaller like identity driven niches or interest driven mm-hmm. niches that marketing by and large it, it doesn't take care of itself. But if you make something that's specific and resonant enough there's you don't have to do as much on the marketing end you don't have to be a marketing wizard to to get people's attention and earn that attention and keep it um if the the core product is is uh i guess relevant enough to the group you're trying to reach yeah um but yeah trying to trying to do any like compete on on a platform like amazon for attention these days and i don't know why anybody goes to amazon anymore like who who wants their film there given the the absurd yeah. royalty cuts and whatnot but yeah that's a, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that's a whole other thing but yeah but i think i mean i i feel like we learned a lot of really interesting marketing lessons about 
today on tour for sure. One of them, it turns out, is that most American adults are just waiting for somebody to invite them to put on a costume and leave their homes. So if there's any way, because the people you're describing that were interviewed, some of them were vampires, but most of them were not. But they were just like people who just wanted to put on a costume and leave their house and go to a community event and watch a movie and hang out. Um, That's awesome. So that was really interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. I I assume most of those people were were vampire community. No, they're not. (laughs) That's insightful. That's really insightful. Yeah. Yeah. And... And again, I think it was like tapping into that outsider thing. Like there was one really memorable screening we had in Vicksburg, Mississippi, um, where I had never been before. And, and I had never been to the state of Mississippi before. And this man, Daniel Boone, uh, who has a theater there, heard what we were doing and called us up and we're like, you have to come to Vicksburg with this film. And we were like, are you sure? Like, have you, have you watched it? And he was like, yeah, yeah, come. So we're driving into Mississippi with this pretty edgy and very female forward film. And I, I like, I remember driving into the state and feeling nervous about what the response was going to be, which, you know, that's my own prejudice showing, but, um, but there we are. And, you know, pulled into this town with some Confederate flags around and what, and I was getting increasingly nervous. And then we pull up to this building and, and Daniel and his man, Jack, have painted a whole side of their building with our poster image to advertise the film. And that was the only audience with 100% audience costume participation. Oh, and, the, and what we realized was that in Vicksburg, Mississippi, it is a very, very big deal to be a weirdo and to be an outsider. Whereas in New York or LA, like it's a it's kind of a big deal, but it's not really that big a deal. And so at this, this screening was this opportunity for these people who felt so isolated in their outsiderness to come and let that their insides just out on full display. And it was such an emotional and moving screening. And like this man, this fairly normal looking older white man just like came up to me and started sobbing in my arms after the screening because he felt seen and felt, you know, included and he didn't normally feel that way. And um, so, so there was definitely something about the marketing of the tour that, that became about like building, building an event that would allow people to sort of interact with other people in a meaningful way. And what I heard over and over from people was how lonely they are. Yeah. Um, And and that was, that was one of your takeaways, I think in the, the final episode is in like this in world where like we're increasingly connected digitally that it doesn't really mean shit anymore. And people are, and because you know, we're, we're, inherently or tribal we like connection is uh just one of those core human needs that we we tried to get met through through digital stuff but it it isn't working and it's such an unmet need at this point in time that you're you did such a great act of service for people by giving them an outlet to come together and connect over 
over their outsiderness, their weirdness, and to have an right. experience that they never would have had otherwise. Well, and with each other, like this ended up being a big part of the, so after almost every screening, we threw a jo joyful vampire ball um, that was like part costume party, kind of part community building event, part let your freak flag fly moment. Um, and what, what we observed over and over was strangers. So, it, and it, it was so simple, like we just, I led people in this very brief sort of like setup for the ball where basically I invited them to try to approach the evening with radical kindness and openness and gave them like a few prompts of questions to ask strangers to start a conversation that, that aren't like, what's your job or what do you do or where do you live or where do you come from? Um, and like what, what kind of prompts did you use just out of curiosity? Um, so I said, try asking them uh, either what makes you joyful or what would you like me to know about you? Um, and just that permission to approach a stranger and begin a conversation in a, in a sort of deep and open way, we would notice people who didn't know each other talking long into the night, having like really meaningful connection and conversation. And so many times people would come up to me afterwards and say like, that's the first meaningful conversation I've had with a stranger in years. And I think it's that phone thing of like, in the past, there were all of these little moments where we were open to meeting a stranger, like waiting in line at the grocery store. I mean, all of this is <laughs> not true in coronavirus time, but remember back to a month ago, um, you know, in line at the grocery store or um, on a bus or like all these moments where, where we were just you know, in a public space with nothing to do. And so there were these moments that opened up to, to meeting people and interacting with people that now every one of those moments is filled with us looking at our phones. Um, and so I think in that context, this is a really important thing for filmmakers to think about is like, what is the point of what we're doing? Well, stories have always, always been about bringing people together. And I think to recognize the mental and emotional lack that is springing up in this so digital world like how can we participate in bringing people back together in physical space yeah and like you like i love that you guys went out of your way to create an experience that is just so different than anything else i think anyone has probably ever experienced by just going to a movie. it's not just going to a movie you created a completely different context like there was um I think you led people in a loving kindness meditation, like a meta meditation, mm -hmm. which yep. awesome. I love it. Um, which which was very interesting in different parts of the country. Oh, I, I bet. I, you know, <laughs> like we started in New York where everyone was like right on board. Right, yeah, right? of course, of course. Um, but there was, there was um, at least one screening, I think it was in North Carolina where I said, um, you know, and we're going to do, I'm going to lead you in a brief um meditation and, and a, a man shot up out of his seat and left the theater. Oh um, my God. I think that was more, one of the more Christian, like sort of ultra Christian places we were in. Um, but, but it was also very beautiful to watch people sort of resist that idea. And then like by the end of it, they would be weeping or, you know, sort of, you could see their, their heart open in a different way.
Yeah. And then it, it leads, it leads into, you know, creating the context for actually connecting with people once, once they're open. Exactly. It's really beautiful, really kind of, really kind of profound. So maybe. It, I mean, it was profound, yeah. but also so simple. Like this yeah. is the thing. Like, so I, I did lead people in that meditation, but it, again, like very simple. And, and what I did is I, I invited them to do the loving kindness meditation first for themselves and then to pick somebody that they didn't know in the audience and do the same thing. And, and we did the meditation again and they were supposed to offer it to that person. So like, you know, very lovely, but not, not very complicated. And then I just gave them the prompts and that was it. But like people are so hungry for that connection that you just need to give them the context and just set them on their way. Yeah. God, I fucking love that so much. So, so much. So maybe, maybe it'd be good to back up and just talk about the, the tour itself and like what you were trying to do. Cause I I feel like we maybe started getting into the weeds. Um, yeah. So how the hell did you come to this joyful (laughs) vampire tour where you're tooting around the entirety of the U S in a decked out RV? Yeah. Um, well, funny story. So in the fall of 2018, we had a finished movie. We were applying to film festivals. Um, and at that point, we, we were walking down the traditional distribution route. We were having early conversations with distributors and sales agents, and you could just feel the despondency wafting off of them. Like every conversation was we absolutely love this movie. If this movie came to us 10 years ago, we would have made it a giant hit. And we have literally no idea how to sell this movie right now. Um, and so after a number of those conversations, my producing partner, Sarah Wharton, and I just, after each one, just kept looking at each other and saying like, this feels so bad. Like, even if, even if one of them did take it, like, this is the, like, just the feeling of this atmosphere is just awful. Um, so basically what happened is one night I had a dream (laughs) in which we were driving around the country on something called the Joyful Vampire Tour of America in an RV. So it literally was a dream. It literally came to me in a dream. And then this was like in in November of 2018. And I called Sarah in the morning and I was like, okay, maybe this is insane, but what if we just rented an RV and and like drove the film around the country to the audience that we know is there. And because she's the best producing partner ever, she said, yes, and let's put fangs on it on the RV. (laughs) And you did. And we did. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, so basically then from November to January, we were researching this idea and trying to figure out if it was completely batshit or not. Um, and we, we talked to some dis- distributors, we talked to other filmmakers, we talked to people who'd self-distributed before, we sort of just like, and, and the response from everybody was basically, well, nothing else is working, you may as well try this. Yeah, um, that's how you know things have gotten really, really bad. <laughs> when and you that, can, that, was yeah. a, that was a distributor who said that to us and we were like, okay, great, <laughs> shit. Okay, we're going to do this. So we made the decision to do it in January and then spent January through April sort of like balls to the wall making it happen and booking the theaters and everything. And then the tour began on May 5th. I love it. Let I really want to, I'd love to go deep on 
booking theaters because a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of filmmakers I know still aren't necessarily keen to the fact that you can you can get into most most any indie theater out there. I don't I don't know necessarily about the bigger chains, although I've heard of heard of some filmmakers like really indie filmmakers who've gotten into bigger uh bigger complexes, but that'll I have no idea about that one. But yeah. um I guess I just love to hear the thought process of I guess how you how you research which theaters would be a good fit for something like this. Um and what kind of terms you were able to negotiate because sometimes you know you have Mm -hmm. to you have to pay up front to rent a space sometimes you are are splitting ticket revenue um there's there's all sorts of ways that those deals can can come out um so i'm curious how you approached it yeah um so i'm going to tell you all of that and i also just on the record want to give my producing partner sarah props because she did most of this so i'm going to tell you but know that it was her (laughs) um so basically when Once we decided to do this in January, then we had to decide on a tour route. So we announced to our fans that this was happening, that we were going to do this and put a form on our website and said, if you want us to come to your town, uh, fill out this form, tell us which theater in town you think we should contact, um, and would you agree to be a local host if we came there? Um, meaning like, would you be the boots on the ground, help us kind of coordinate, get, turn your friends out to come to the screening, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, And maybe, and and maybe this would be a good, sorry to interject on you a little bit, but this might be a good time just to emphasize how insanely important those hosts ended up being in your, in your marketing efforts and getting, you know, um, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, the local hosts were the main reason the tour worked. Um, Because one of the things we realized is that the the means by which every community finds out about local events is so wildly different from place to place. So some communities literally still have a bulletin board (laughs) for locals that like they check that bulletin board and that's how they find out about events to go to. Um, sometimes it's the local paper, sometimes it's a local radio station and nobody but a local would have that information. So, so on that level alone, the hosts were able to feed us all of that information so that we knew how to market to their community. Um, and then of course, most of them hustled like, um, wizards to get their friends out to the screenings as well. Um, but so basically we put this this form up online and we had 72 requests within i think 48 hours no shit um, which what a what kind of uh i'm, I'm gonna sorry i'm just gonna keep interrupting you because yeah, yeah. apparently that's how this goes now um <laughs> what kind of audience building did you do prior to all this like it's because it sounds like you did some audience building during you know during yeah. everything that preceded this um yeah we what'd did. that look like so i learned during Imagine I'm Beautiful to be a email address collecting maniac. Amen, um, sister. So, uh, to the, to, so one of my primary quibbles with film festivals is that they should give every filmmaker the email list of people who buy tickets for their film, um, but most of them won't. So I would hire somebody 
in each place that we had a film festival screening for Imagine I'm Beautiful to stand at the door with a clipboard and make sure that they collected the email address of every single person who left the theater. Um, so I, so I had built that email list for Imagine I'm Beautiful, who then sort of became my fans as a filmmaker. Um, and that was a list that kind of grew in the years between Imagine I'm Beautiful and Bite Me. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty religious newsletter sender. Um, you and me both. Yep, to, to keep that, that audience warm. Um, and so then, so, so for Bite Me, I had, I had sort of this existing group of fans. Certainly our cast brought some of their own fans, um, specifically Christian Coulson, who I mentioned, who was um, Tom Riddle and Harry Potter. Um, Naomi Grossman from American Horror Story and Annie Golden from a lot of things, most recently Orange is the New Black. Um, and so, so they brought some people to the table, uh, a lot of people to the table. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we created the Bite Me social media accounts, I think, I think sort of like shortly before we went into pre-production. Is that right? Maybe before. I don't know. Anyway, we certainly had them by the time we went into pre-production and we're pretty good about posting throughout pre-production, throughout production. Um, and then all of that work to lead into the crowdfunding campaign. And of course, then that brought in more people and I was sending newsletters through this whole time. So yeah, we, we had certainly done that work. I, and I just want to point out to anybody listening, like that's, that's what it takes. Like so many people ignore all of this stuff through pre-production, through production, through post, um, they get maybe they even get onto the festival circuit. They get a, a couple of uh, shitty offers or no offers, and then they're like, maybe we should start doing outreach. But they haven't done any of the proactive work up front to to cultivate right. those relationships. And it and and I think the key thing to understand is how glamorous uh, and interesting the process of making a movie still is to most people in the world. We, I think it's, it's really easy to forget because we know what a slog it actually is, but, um, like one of the primary things that you have to offer these people, uh, that, that Hollywood isn't, is that they can have a front row seat to the process of making the movie. Um, and people love that. Like even from before you're in pre-production, even the like sort of insane casting process and fundraising process, like it's, if you can, if you can um, share that in a way that, you know, in the, in the way of being a storyteller and making it an interesting story, which it is, people then, then by the time your film comes out, you don't just have fans, you have people who have been with us, with you on this journey for years. And they, so they are not only so excited to see this movie, but they will, you know, be local hosts. They will get their friends out. They will post about it on the internet. Like those are the kind of fans yeah, you need. Exactly. And it, like, like you hit the nail on the head, like the, the general public, just the mat, like, almost nobody besides filmmakers and maybe a few other creative industries really knows what it goes like what goes into this process and by by telling the story of what it takes and showing all the nuts and bolts and just some of the you know some pieces of it are just suck ass for lack of a better way of putting it um you you raise the perceived value of what you're making because 
it's, yes. it's easy to forget that despite the fact that there's a million and one shows and movies out there and they, they all have this slick production value, it, they, a lot of people just seem to think they come out of the ether fully formed. Right. Um, and by, by getting people invested in the journey, um, you, you just raise the value of what you're doing. Um, and yeah. you, that, that might even translate into being able to charge a higher price and breaking out of like this sort of commoditized, like bargain basement pricing that films have gotten stuck in. Cause it's, yeah. that's amazing to me that you can spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on something that then sells for four ninety nine on goddamn that, iTunes. As like, we learned on the drive of that people won't even pay four ninety nine for that, that, that anything but free feels like too much money. But I agree with you that that people don't feel that way if they have been part, if they've seen all the work that you've done, like then they will pay more, you know, more for ticket and they'll buy a t-shirt and they'll, you know, mm-hmm. yep. buy a DVD. Exactly. It's all those, all those other little revenue streams that you can add in there to make the experience more meaningful for the people who, who want to give more, who are more invested in what you've made. And if you give them the opportunity to buy more stuff, then they very often will, especially if you've done the proactive work to nurture them um, and build relationships with them and, and show them, you know, how hard you're busting their ass to make something amazing for them. Yeah. Um, well, and this, this is a, an, an important point to bring up is that we made $9,000 from merchandise alone on the tour. Um, yeah. What which, kind of merch? Just, what kind of merch just did, as, you, just, did you have? Well, just as a quick reminder, that is... $4,000 more than we made from my entire first feature film <laughs> just from merchandise. Um, we had, we had good merchandise. We had two types of t-shirts. Um, we had hoodies. We had um, several different types of mugs. We had um, bite me like enamel pins that were quite popular. Uh, we had DVDs and Blu-rays. We sold an astonishing number of DVDs and Blu-rays. We actually had to reorder because we underestimated how many of those we would sell. We did have posters for sale, although I believe on the entire tour, we only sold one poster, which I found very interesting. Surprising. Yeah, I know. And it's such a cool poster. It's very weird. Huh. What's the process for getting all of that stuff made? Like, do you just find like print on demand, or I guess you wouldn't use print on demand. Uh, like, how do you, how do you go about actually making kick-ass so merchandise? We, we found this really great company called Grayscale. Grayscale. So how do you, how do you spell that? Them. Is it, is it just, <laughs> yeah. is it just spelled how it sounds? Yeah, I think it's G-R-E-Y-S-C-A-L-E. Um, yeah, j- just hire them. So base, so they, um, they dealt with making all of the merchandise like we designed it obviously but they dealt with all of the supply chain everything making it and and we had we always had to order minimum amounts of things um but then they were also really nice and and even drop shipped us uh orders along the tour route because we couldn't fit all of the merchandise we needed for the entire tour into the rv and also (laughs) have room for ourselves um so, so yeah, so they drop shipped us orders as we went. Uh, they were great. I would just hire them or, yes. or find some company like yeah, them. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, uh, I t- are you still selling merch through, through the site and whatnot? Yeah, we are. Nice. Yeah. Ah, so cool. So okay. If so you, let- uh, if you'd like yeah. a really cool love sucks t-shirt, <laughs> head on over to bite me the Yeah. Love it. So maybe we should pick up where 
Oh yeah. I started interrupting. <laughs> I started interrupting the crap out of you. Uh, but I feel like there was some really productive tangents. No, no, in there. this is I all. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> we put the form on the website. Yeah. We had these seventy-two requests for screenings, um, and which was more. We knew that we had three months for the tour that we, we had already determined those parameters. So we knew that you, we couldn't do 72 screenings in 90 days without dying. So we started prioritizing based on the locations where we did have somebody who'd signed up to be the local host. Um, and Sarah basically with a couple interns just started cold calling theaters. And this is to your point about filmmakers not understanding how easy this is. We had no connections to theaters like this was not we literally found their numbers on the internet and called them or found their email addresses and emailed them or even sometimes that was impossible and we just messaged them through facebook um and said you know here's the thing here's the here's what we're doing we're doing this joyful vampire tour um uh the filmmaker the, the writer and actress will be at every screening at least. Um, and we're, we want to do this joyful vampire ball in connection with it. Um, what do you think? And most of them were so excited yeah. that they, that they not only said yes, but they said yes. And what if we, um, uh, did a themed vampires in summer costume party contest and or what if we did a joyful vampire yoga class instead because our people really like yoga or like what if you know they so they it was it was just amazing yeah um and i th i think like i have a, an intuition on this like knowing a bunch of people who've worked in indie theaters like i'm in tucson and i think you you went to uh we, the screening we did, we downtown came, yeah, yeah, we came yeah. to Tucson. Uh, and there's another one here in Tucson that's pretty legendary called The Loft. Um, but like the people who work at these places are, I'm pretty sure your target audience in a lot of ways. They're, they're sort oh, of yeah. goofy, goofy <laughs> outsiders. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I, I'm sure that contributed to, you know, some of the enthusiasm that they threw here. Not to mention the fact that you guys were probably like so much more organized than the average indie filmmaker that, that contacts them looking for a screening space. Just the fact, yeah. like the, the vision of it and the fact that it's something that, that breaks the, uh, it, it just breaks outside of the norm. Um, and there's value there. Yeah, And also, sure. you know, for a lot of these theaters, it's a really big deal to have the filmmaker present, you know, in, in New York and LA, if you can find a screening without a filmmaker present, that's kind of a miracle, but like, but in other parts of the country, that's actually a really big deal. So I think, you know, these film these fil theaters are just trying to fill their seats. So if they can have a one night event where the filmmaker is going to be there and there's going to be a party afterwards, like it's kind of a no brainer. Um, so, and, and, and so, the, so the rule we had set for ourselves is that we weren't going to pay rental fees because we didn't have the budget for it. And, we just decided we weren't going to do that, that we would only work with theaters that would give us a split, uh, who would split the box office with us and not require any kind of upfront fee. Um, and so there were theaters for sure that wouldn't take those terms. Most places we found a theater that would. In some places, we didn't find a movie theater that would. And so we ended up screening at an alternative venue. Um, like, like in, well, in Philadelphia, we screened in, in a former morgue, <laughs> uh, which was very on theme. Um, 
in in Massachusetts, we screened at uh, Hammond Castle, which is actually it's a it's a castle where my next film takes place. So that was very cool. Um, one time we screened in a yoga studio and we did a joyful vampire yoga class before we screened in a couple community centers and those screenings I have to say were great and I we were we were we were reticent generally about taking alternative screening venues because we sort of had that filmmaker thing of feeling like well you know it really should be in a movie theater but I if I were to do this again I would be quicker to to do alternative venues because the 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 main thing you want is a venue that that sort of is the local cultural center where if that place schedules something people will come simply because that place has decided that it's worth seeing yeah um, local, and some local places that is yeah yeah and and some places that is the local indie art house cinema and some places it isn't some places it, it is their community center or whatever um, so that that was a really good lesson. So the only places we broke our rule about not renting were in New York, which we did on purpose because we knew that we could make more money. We knew that we would we we suspected that we would sell out our New York screenings because that was our home base. And so we did the math and realized that we would make more money if we did pay a rental fee and then just kept the full box office, which proved to be true. Um, we couldn't find a New York, uh, a venue in LA that would do a split rental. So I think, I think we did have to rent theaters in LA and then the, the only other place, oh, and in, in Aspen, my hometown, we also paid a rental fee knowing that we would make more money that way. Cause we knew that we could fill it. Um, and then the only other place we broke that rule was in Chicago where we couldn't find a theater that would take that deal. And it was a beautiful theater, but I regret that one because in a situation where you're just paying a theater a rental fee, they have no incentive to help you market the screening. <laughs> um, and so the, the places that were giving us split box office deals worked really hard in a lot of cases to help us fill the theater. Yeah. And did you, um, did you have like assets ready for them to help you market? Like, I assume you have a trailer and yeah. I mean, well, yes. And we had a trailer for sure, but I also pretty aggressively, um, contacted them ahead of time and was like, Hey, are you like, and offering them marketing ideas too, and market like supplemental marketing materials. So I had this pretty impressive spreadsheet because <laughs> we did 51 screenings in 90 days in the end which is bananas and the marketing team on the road was basically me and a couple of part-time paid like hourly folks um but so i had this spreadsheet of like <laughs> i mean imagine throwing a full-scale event basically every other night for 90 days. Um, so I had the spreadsheet where I ha- I would, ha- it was sort of like the six weeks leading up to each date and the schedule of what I needed to send the local host and the local theater in terms of marketing materials, um, which 
was incredibly effective. And I don't, I don't think the theaters would have done as good a job of marketing if we hadn't like actively offered them materials and ideas on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's just another, it's just another example of being proactive and doing everything that you possibly can, including badass spreadsheet stuff, which spreadsheets very much scare me. Maybe one there day were a lot, there were a lot of spreadsheets involved yeah. in the Triple Vampire Tour of America. But like doing everything you can possibly within reason to tip the scales in your favor, like leaving as little to chance as possible. And like, again, that's, yeah. it's what you have to do in these, these crazy times where there's so much competing for people's attention. And there's, there's so many ways that you can just lose out to, to apathy in the end if you're not proactive. Yeah. So what kinds of things did you do to get butts in the seats? Uh, at least in terms of these local screenings, because I know you you did a lot in terms of uh, like national and international with like online at like Facebook ads, which I really want to talk about. But mm -hmm. we'll start we'll start local. Um, I mean we we did everything. <laughs> we left no stone unturned because we just weren't sure what would work really. So we we had local hosts hang posters in play in around town in every place um we like i said i i would i knew that the most powerful tools would be the local hosts themselves and their networks and the theaters and their networks um so i i had my spreadsheet and um had this schedule of sending them like here's a template for an email to send to your friends this week, just making it as easy as possible for them. So all they had to do was take that thing and, and take a couple of steps and send it out. Um, ideas for social media posts, um, you know, co consistently giving them content to push out. Um, we did try local press, um, which was actually shockingly difficult to get which was very surprising to me because we were showing up in their town with an RV with things. Like that just yeah. seemed like, it's, it's, at least from like a, like yeah. that could be the fluff story. Yeah, uh, it's, it's fundamentally newsworthy, which is, is interesting to me because I have a, a, a friend who's, um, who's had really a lot of luck with his, his local screenings almost entirely on the back of local press. So it it might be a it might be a case by case basis kind of thing where I know yeah he, and maybe knows, I mean maybe yeah. we were just doing it wrong I, I I feel like we were doing a good job but anyway that that didn't work very well for us um, although I have to say in the places where we did manage to get it it was incredibly effective in driving people to the screenings um, and I think the places we got it it was most often because the theater had a relationship with a local press outlet and they put muscle behind getting us um, a story. Um, so we did that, we did, uh, we did paid Facebook ads for local events, for the local screenings, which we didn't initially put a lot of money into because it seemed impossible to me that anyone yeah. would see an ad on Facebook be of, so we were, we were targeting obviously within a locality. So only people in the Philadelphia area would see that ad. Um, but they would, but because we were only in every place for one night, they would have to be available on the night that we happened to be in their town. They would have to want to see the movie and put on pants and leave their house. And you spent, like, it just seemed like yeah. there was no way that this was gonna work. You lost um, me at uh, pants. 
right? Just a deal breaker. <laughs> and I, but I, the, those were stunningly effective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually were more effective than the Facebook ads for TVOD sales, which is makes no sense to me, but yeah. it's true. I don't want, um, it, it might be, it might be as simple as, again, targeting very specific groups and the promise of an event that's going to be worth their time um, because they can watch a million things online. They can, yeah. there's, there's no shortage of things to put on the screen in front of them. Yeah. Um, but for meaningful human connection and yeah. a joyful vampire a ball and, and yeah. whatnot, it, um, it's an escape from the mundane escape from, you know? Yeah. 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 That's but, yeah. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very, like, I, there are very few things film related that I'm, that I'm bullish and enthusiastic about with Facebook ads. Cause a lot of people think Facebook ads are like a magic bullet where you like, I'll spend $1 and I'll make 10. And like, it's like, okay, okay. Um, cause like I, I come from again, more of a, a marketing background where I've run campaigns for a lot of people with, uh, you know, selling books, selling higher end courses, selling coaching and consulting and memberships mm -hmm. and things like that. And even like on a $500 program, and it, it depends, you know, niche to niche and how you like, like which, which audience you're targeting, but it can be shockingly difficult to profit on the front end through Facebook ads when you have a $500 mm. program as your main mm. offer. And when you're sure. doing it with a film that costs $4.99 or $10 or even $20 on the high end, if you're like, you know, if you're going for it, um, and then you're subsequently putting it on Amazon, iTunes, which take, you know, 30, 40, 50% off the top. And you don't also own that customer relationship, which it, you know, like, you know, the value right. of, of right. email lists and knowing all that, like there's, and then further when you like a lot of them report quarterly, some of them report monthly, there's oh. no way, like one oh. of the beautiful things about online advertising is being able to make informed decisions on the fly based on the data coming in. But with yeah. these third-party platforms, you're just, you're, you're shooting in the dark. You have no fucking clue what's going on. And, and, and that was the single worst and hardest thing about what we did is not knowing. There was a three month lag finding out our digital numbers. That just, that just gives me like the shivers. <laughs> and, and which makes marketing impossible. Like you cannot pivot or do, I mean, it, it's impossible. And, and what's particularly crazy making about this is that, well, obviously they have that data instantaneously. So there is no reason that they should, they should not be able to turn it over within a matter of days, if not hours. But secondly, now that I've had a book published, I know for a fact that my book publisher can log into Amazon at any time and look up exactly the number of books that have been sold up to the minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. So why uh, yeah, it's true on, on the film side, because yeah. Amazon only released that information every three months, I think because Amazon is making content and wants to screw over all oh, of yeah. their competition. Yeah, they've, they've made that pretty, pretty clear. Well, they, they've made a lot of things very clear over the last few years in terms of how they, how they treat the the indie film community in particular, but oh man, yeah, I went on a little rant there. But what what I was mostly trying to get at is like there <laughs> these the like driving attention to local screenings where you can get really really precise with your targeting, where you're within mm -hmm. a geographic region and a, a specific set of like psychographic 
interests or whatever, however you have chosen to target this niche, not only can you get like really, really cheap ads because nobody is bidding to reach that specific audience, but it's, it's just more effective given, I think some of the other things we talked about in terms of creating an experience, like if you're able to, if you're able to, you know, make a promise that is actually compelling, um, those ads can very well pay off. And especially if you're, you're selling merch and have other ways of monetizing that. If you're, if you're building your list at the screenings and then you're selling on the back end through the list, like there's a lot of ways that you can actually make those, those economics pay off with, uh, with that type of advertising, but I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. And, and I will say that the other big benefit of Facebook ads is in early market testing your theories about who your audience is and about those niche groups. So this, I feel we did, and I feel particularly proud of thinking of, uh, because early, uh, a couple of months before the tour, we were like, okay, well, we have this idea that people who like Harry Potter will also like our film. We have this idea that people who like vampire movies, traditional vampire movies will like our film, but we don't know for sure. Um, so we were, so we ran a set amount of money testing each of these different demographic groups, um, with our trailer to see like, what would the click through rate be for each of these audiences? And that was invaluable information because then you could take that information and know that you should be going to target all Harry Potter fan clubs of all varieties or, yeah. you know. Well, what, what specifically did you learn from that? And like, what? What assumptions did you make that turned out to be true? Which ones didn't or anything that surprised you? Like, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, well, actually, the surprising thing is that we were right across the board, which was, which was actually very surprising. Um, so, Respect. Thank you. Um, because, so the, the, the film is a vampire romantic comedy. So, like, there was always this fundamental question of, like, well, it's neither, it's not fully a vampire film, in the traditional sense, because they're, they're not supernatural vampires. Um, they're people who drink human blood because they believe they need to, to stay healthy. Um, which sort of edges it slightly out of the vampire film realm. And because of the presence of vampires, it edges it slightly out of the traditional romantic comedy realm. So our question was like, which of those groups will the film appeal more to so that we can know that to target our marketing more in one direction or another. Um, And when we tested that, actually they came back with equally very high click-through rates of, I think 17%, which is like way higher than. That's insanely high. Um, Were you, were you driving to people to like a landing page where they could sign up or like, what was the thinking there? Um, we were driving people, I believe at that point to the trailer. Gotcha. Yeah. So is it like, a, and I'm just curious about like the, the mechanics on all these things. Like, so maybe like a little like teaser trailer video ad or like what was the, the ad itself? Um, I am trying to remember. We, ha- we worked with this exceptionally wonderful digital marketing company called Digital Limit. Um, and they ran our Facebook marketing and ads for us. I think, yeah, I think it was like a teaser trailer video that started playing and then you could click, no, maybe you could click through to to a landing page to sign up for more information. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm just curious because there's a million and one ways to do Facebook ads. Um, yeah. And ways to sort of build out your funnel and, and you know, build, you know, look like yeah, all the things you can do. But uh, yeah, that what round was really more about testing just, the, the click-through yeah. rates. And like validation of the yeah, uh, assumptions. Yeah, of the audiences. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Hmm. Let's see. So maybe maybe we just, well, let's let's wrap up the, the tour um, and talk about maybe just like, what, like how much, how, how much did you make from the tour mm-hmm. uh, and like which revenue sources and maybe some that surprised you? Um, and what were your takeaways from, from doing this thing and going on the road and, you know, putting on these screenings? Yeah. Um, so numbers, we grossed 38,000, around $38,000 from ticket sales for the screenings. Um, we made about $9,000 from merchandise. We made, uh, as of the most recent, so so the film was available for TVOD on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play during, during the tour and after. I believe to date, at least as of the most recent data we have, we've made around $1,800 from all of those platforms combined. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Well, we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we made over $5,000 from streaming on Seed and Spark because they are great and actually pay filmmakers. Um, What's, I, yeah. I feel like you mentioned it in the, maybe the, the Joyful Vampire, maybe on, on Alex's podcast, but what's, what's the deal with Seed and Spark's streaming platform? Because I, I remember hearing it and thinking to myself, yeah. that seems like an unreasonably high royalty rate. <laughs> It is, it's on, I mean, yeah. So they, um, so, so they are a, a pay what you can subscription streaming service. Uh, so you can decide on any dollar amount, I think above $4 or $3 and then get access to their content, much like Netflix, although it's indie film content and shorts and series, but all indie. Um, and they pay per minute viewed and it, it changes all of the time, presumably based on subscriptions, but it's some, and, and also whether or not you're exclusive on them when you're on there. Um, but I believe it's like between 25 cents and 81 cents per minute. That's nuts to me. It's, like when, no, it's, when, yeah, it's when, bananas. I, when <laughs> like Amazon just shifted to like, we'll give you a penny per hour. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Right. Um, yeah, I I feel like that gravy train is going to have to run out at some point, but definitely get your film on Seed and Spark immediately yeah. before it does. And it's also possible that you know Seed and Spark makes their money on the back end through commissions on the crowdfunding platform, and yeah. they can essentially you know right. afford to run the the VOD platform at a at a loss or at break even to. Yeah, you know, attract more attract more talent. So that I and I have no idea. I should probably talk to them because I'm sure we could nerd out. You should. A lot of this you should stuff. definitely talk to them. Yeah, I mean, and and they. I should mention that they were our partners on the the Joyful Vampire tour. They they helped us uh, in many ways, um, but I don't know what their their business model is on that side. But I just know that uh, they pay 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 well. Yeah. It's it's mind blowing to me. And yeah, like it, it's like. 
you kind of have to like admire all the people who got on the Amazon gravy train early on when Prime Video Direct was still like an unknown thing and they're paying, you know, 15 cents an hour as opposed to one cent an hour. And there are people who made really good money there for quite a while. Um, And, you know, you always have to expect these things to change. But as filmmakers, I mean, it's more like entrepreneurial filmmakers. We have to be able to recognize these trends and opportunities when they present themselves and be decisive and, and jump on them. Um, because assuming that they'll always be there is, um, you know, misguided at best and, you know, shooting yourself in the foot at worst. Um, well, and particularly right now, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <when> nothing, everything, <laughs> yeah. nothing will be here in a minute that was here now. What a, what a weird time to be alive now. Although like one of the, one of the thoughts, like this is completely off topic and, but like one of the thoughts that's consuming me right now is. I have to imagine that there are people getting fat, for lack of a better way of putting it, who are making considerable money off of this glut and attention with everybody staying home because of coronavirus. Yeah. And I'm almost certain that very little of that money is making its way back to the people who actually created these films. Yeah. And I'm hoping, like, like my sincere hope is like that they are are making money and seeing some whatever on the back end. But my, my sincere hope is that this whole crisis as shitty as it is, and is like uh, the fact that production has stopped and so many people are out of work is it's really, really heartbreaking. But my, my sincere hope is that it will be sort of a wake up call to the indie film community in particular, in terms of how fucking important it is to be able to own the rights to your projects and be able to exploit them yourself. And like, there's, there's a million and one reasons to go with, a traditional distributor to partner with people who can exploit rights that you're not able to. Um, but I more and more, it just seems so crystal clear to me that to make have any, like even vaguely a shot at making a living doing this kind of work. Um, not only do you have to think entrepreneurially, but you have to be in a position to directly exploit those rights um, and, yeah. and maximize as much of the money that your project is making and have as much of it as possible come back to you. Because if you put two or three layers of middlemen between um, the customer, the viewer oh, and yeah. yourself, then nothing is going to make its way and back. There goes your the money. Uh, well, and I also think that this moment um, is again, amidst the devastation and pain, which is very real. I think it's in the wake of this is going to be a, such rich soil for new modes and models and growth um, because everything about how we're living is being redesigned and reimagined right now. And like, you know, AMC may not reopen uh, after this, you know, like who knows what will, what Titans will come down in this moment. And I feel like this is our opportunity as an indie film community to like be on the bleeding edge of something yeah. new. Yeah. This is the, this is the, uh, I don't know the, the, just what I've been trying to shout from the mountaintops these last few weeks is like, we get to create the new normal when, when the world sort of stabilizes, we, right. we get to like, this is a rare pocket of time where, you know, we, we get to learn some new skills that'll, that'll, you know, serve us. And we may very well have the opportunity to come out of this whole crisis stronger than when we went in and more prepared 
for the world as it is right now. <laughs> um, right. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating time, man. <laughs> sure is. Yeah. Huh. And also sort of a disheartening time and scary time and all that. Yeah, of course. But let's talk about digital sales now that we're on like depressing <laughs> topics. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think it was in like the first or second episode of Joyful Vampire Tour, and you talked about the revenue projections for yeah. for digital sales. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but you, you mentioned some of these early tests that you ran and like the insanely high click-through rates because 16% is is no joke. And, you know, there's, no. there's, all, there's all sorts of anomalies on Facebook, like false positives and, you know, um, things where it's more, more noise than signal, but, you know, it, Facebook's its own thing, but the the revenue projections that you pulled from that was like um we're going to go into this with a $20,000 ad spend i think mm -hmm. 20 and hopefully based on these projections that we've made based on the tests that we've run um we're going right. to make up based uh, on real data yeah not not just pulling numbers out of your ass like most nope. filmmakers tend to um and into like the projection was we'll make upwards of a million bucks maybe 1.5 i think in digital sales Yep. Yeah. And, and that, that was calculated based only on the digital ad spend. So not taking into account the buzz that the tour would build, not taking into account, you know, word of mouth or anything. Yeah. Um, just. Yeah. Were you, were you able to, and like tracking a lot of these things can be insanely hard, especially when you're relying on Amazon iTunes, whatever for data. And it's one of the big reasons that I'm like, even though consumers aren't necessarily that aware of it, but why I'm such a big fan of selling through platforms like Gumroad or Vimeo on mm -hmm. demand, where not only do yeah. you take a bigger slice, but you own the customer data on the back end. Yep. Um, but oh, where, where the hell was I going with that? Um, is there, do you have any sense of how effective the tour was at driving digital sales? Um, well, so I, what I know is that about 2,600 people came out and bought tickets to the screenings. Um, and about 570 people during that same period of time watched the film online, which goes against everything we've been told about <laughs> how people consume films right now. Yeah. I, that was stunning to me. Um, so... And, and the, as you say, there's basically no way of tracking this. Um, but my guess is that the majority of those online views were driven by the tour and not by the, the Facebook ad sales. Uh, yeah, that makes it even, even more depressing. Um, one other, one other because, tangent. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Can I just, yeah, one yeah. thing that we did that was very clever, if I can say so myself, is that at, so because I continue to be an email address collection maniac, we set up a text to subscribe thing for the Bite Me mailing list. And so in the theater, at the end of the Q&A session, I would explain to audiences why distribution is killing indie filmmakers and then invite them to be part of the solution by signing up for our email list through this text thing. And I said, and I'm going to send you an email in the morning with all of the links for people to watch our film online for the rest of our tour schedule. Will you just forward that email to five friends? 
like, will you help me? Like, I'm trying to do this really big thing. <laughs> will you help me spread the word about this film? And that, that I can track because it was all through MailChimp. So I could see how many people subscribed, how many people, and I think like 75% of every audience subscribed or something no insanely shit. high like that to get through the texting. Yeah. And then, um, and then I could see how many of those people opened the email I sent the next morning and how many people then, well, I could guess how many people they'd forwarded it to by how many clicks eventually came through their unique email, you know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that worked like gangbusters. And my guess is that the majority of the online views came through that method. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it's similar. There's a there's a guy who who he's actually he's the one who got me started, who like planted the seed of like, oh, it's actually possible to combine marketing know-how with indie film. Um, and his name is Mike Dion, and he has made a, a pretty substantial living for himself making documentaries about the bikepacking community. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's those crazy nope. ass people who will like ride their, like just throw on a backpack and then ride their bike all the way across the country or all the way down the, um, what is it? The, the Rocky mountains or whatever it is like yep. the, those crazy days long weeks long bike races. Um, but it's such a small niche community, but he's documented a few of these races and made, um, made documentaries there and has been making, pretty substantial money and and like wow. they're they're all evergreen now um because i don't think he's made a new project since like 2015 or 16 hmm. um but the the point i was getting at there is he did something very similar where he i think he used to like it was a giveaway maybe he was like i want to give you a free gift um and just text such and such to such and such and to and like enter your email address and like just, yeah, it is the email offer, like, or opt-in offer type thing, some sort yeah. of cool freebie that would appeal to the audience. And he, he built, uh, he built up his list that way as he was doing yeah. his, his theatrical tour. And it, like, I'm just so stunned that more people don't do it, but it's, it's just brilliant. And like, you have the attention from this group of people and there are ways to get them onto an email list. And that email list is an asset that you carry with you throughout your career. And you can keep nurturing these people and selling them the cool shit that you make. Um, but, I, but I think filmmakers just aren't trained to think like this. I mean, I didn't go to film school. I went to acting school. But I've talked to a lot of people who went to film school. And they just say, like, the way this is taught is basically, like, they spend a lot of time teaching you how to make a film. And then there, the, the lesson is sort of, and then you will apply to Sundance and you will get into Sundance and then somebody will distribute your film. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, it's all the, uh, like all the film professors or the people who were doing it in the 80s and 90s. Right. Um, and then for whatever reason, flamed out and then went to teach at universities. Or haven't flamed out and are still making, but like, yeah. but are making movies in a way where their films do get into Sundance. That is what happens to yeah. them because they're they're alums and they're part of that network right. already and yeah it's yeah i don't know what we were talking about but it's absolutely brilliant that you did the, the <laughs> texting texting to build your email list thing like so oh, so so talking, smart and effective thank you. yeah i think we were talking about the depressing nature of online sales oh, oh but dear. but so i think like the main I've evaluated what happened and how we could have been so wrong from like every, cause it's not like we were a little wrong. <laughs> like again, just to restate that the data said we should have made upwards of a million dollars and we have so far made $1,800. Yeah. Just a little uh, bit, a little bit off. 
So I, having now talked to a lot of different people about like what, it, what could have happened there, I think the only real conclusion to come to is that TVOD is for all in purpose, intents and purposes dead. Um, and that Netflix has essentially trained people to um, expect great content for free or what feels like free because it comes off their credit card every month, which is a fundamentally unsustainable business model, but nevertheless, um, there we are. And so that at this point, people, even $2.99 is too much for people to take out their wallet and actually pay for a specific movie online. Yeah. And unless that film is a Marvel movie or has won an Oscar or something like that level of threshold. Yeah. And my, my intuition on this and like having, having seen people with extraordinarily niche projects, like there was one, I, I was just talking to, um, Linda Nelson from Indie Rights, uh, one of the few yeah. distributors who I've only heard good things about, which is so, so rare these days. Um, but she was telling me about one of their success stories in recent times. And I think it was like a, I think it was like a faith-based little league movie or something like that. So super, super niche. Oh my God. Um, yeah, and, and they, I can tell already they probably did make a million dollars. Yeah. Oh, and that's exactly the thing. It's, it's a niche that is super, uh, faith-based isn't a niche that's underserved, but you, you, um, you niche it down even further with this, this other thing, you know, parents and kids and like their whole involvement in baseball and little league. Um, and I, I think she mentioned like, this filmmaker went around and, and built relationships with like little league coaches and organizations on like a very local grassroots level. Um, but from what I understand, they made a fucking killing on TVOD because they essentially unleashed this wave of very focused attention and very focused desire for this very specific product. Yeah. Um, and that to me is, is, the exception to the rule of TVOD is dying. Cause in almost every sense, like if you, if you just make a, another, you know, another genre film, another horror film, another random comedy or another, whatever, like most filmmakers tend to do, like most filmmakers out of the gate have lost the game because they try to make a lower budget version of what Hollywood does. And you right. just, there's no way to compete. Um, but if you create that niche product out at like, just, like that is your intention from before you've ever written a word or shot a frame. And you know that that audience is there, you know, they're hungry for content, you know, that you can reach them. And then like you said, and like you did, you, you do that legwork to proactively build those relationships, to build your list, connect with um, the influencers in that niche, whether that's people like traditional, what you would think of as influencers um, who have social media followings, or it's little league coaches, like people who are super super influential in like a, a grassroots sense. Um, and you cultivate and you do all of that work ahead of time. I think there is a case to still be made for TVOD. And what I was saying to Linda on that, that call is like, you probably could have made double the money had you gone through a platform like Gumroad, because that audience would have bought that film almost right. regardless of where it lived. Um, right. And why would you go with TVOD on Amazon when... Amazon takes, I think it's 50% on TVOD when you go through them. It might be, it might be 40%, but either way you are losing a yeah. massive chunk of the revenue and you don't own the customer on the back end. So yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I think there are select cases where TVOD works, but again, like we did have a niche audience that did work, 
but not on TVOD. And I did eventually get a sales agent to admit, admit to me off the record only after the tour. And he claims that TVOD revenue overall has gone down 50% year over year for the last two years. No shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and it's not surprising to me, get, like, especially like AVOD is, um, is taking off right now. There, it seems like there's a new AVOD channel like every other day. Uh, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I think Fox bought, um, who'd they buy? They bought Tubi. Like they, they just mm. outright bought Tubi. Um, so the, the attention for all intents and purposes seems to be going to ad supported stuff. Cause maybe, you know, maybe audiences got largely burned out, um, on, on, you know, paying for content bit by bit. So who knows, man, it's right. very, very disheartening, but yeah, I don't know. What do uh... you, yeah. What do you, what do you, the lessons that you took away from, um, the digital side of all of this? Um, I feel like I'm still processing the digital <laughs> lessons. Um, I, I mean, my, my big takeaway overall is that we had, we had, we had two hypotheses really that we were testing. We were testing, would people come out to theaters to see a movie in theaters if you gave them a real reason to in the form of getting to meet the filmmaker and having a party or like just an, an event related to the screening. It doesn't have to be a party. And, and overwhelmingly the answer was yes. The second hypothesis was, would that kind of tour drive online sales along with ad-based spend? And the answer to that was definitively no. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the model is, <laughs> but I know that it's out there. And I know that if we just all keep experimenting and sharing our results with transparency, that we will find a new model. What worries me is that if, like, I won't make enough films in my lifetime to be able to iterate fast enough to come to a new model on my own, unless I just get really lucky and, and hit it one of these times, right? But if we all are doing that and we're all sharing this information, then we all win because we will find the new model faster. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's so, so, so important that just holding experimentation and transparency is core values. Um, yeah. And it goes that goes against um, just the very DNA of the film business, because obviously the financial side of it has always been shrouded in secrecy and all sorts of... Uh, I don't know, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, fuckery. Like there's, there's so many shenanigans. Um, yeah. But like outside of that, there's like being such an expensive art form, few people are willing to do anything even vaguely experimental. So there's just a, there's a disconnect between those values that we need and, um, and just the very, very entrenched culture that even, even as like indie filmmakers who are on the bleeding edge in a lot of ways, we still hold the traditional values in a way that's that's undermining us. So, but but I would say to those filmmakers what that distributor said to me when I when we were wondering about the Joyful Vampire tour, which is nothing else is working. You may as well try it. Like, you know, and I I do teach a distribution class now, and often, you know, I I teach sort of like the the disaster, the melting disaster that happens to films when they go through the traditional distribution model, and then I you know, offer up bite me as one case study of it, of another model. Um, and at the end, like I can see that some students in the class, like 
have amnesia about the first part of the class and are like, yeah, but I guess I'm just going to still have to submit my film to film festivals. And I'm like, but because there's this feeling of like, if we revert, we're reverting to safety, but you're not, you're reverting to yeah. an even bigger problem. Yeah. You're reverting to known, known catastrophe. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. That's disheartening. And it's, it's interesting. I, I guess I'm curious, like knowing what you know now, yeah. If you could go back and start just completely from scratch with a fresh set of assumptions and everything with with um bite me. What changes would you make in how you how you approach this whole project? Um well I would have decided on day 1 of the whole process that we were going to self distribute which would have allowed me to even more aggressively build audience and like make every decision along those many years pointing towards that outcome. Um, it would have allowed me to, uh, I mean, I think we, we made a lot of the decisions that we would have made anyway, like casting actors that had fan bases specifically in our, in our audience. Um, but you know, like it, it just would have been a really great true north through the whole process. Um, I would have, I would have done the tour, but I, the, basically the same way we did it, um, except that I wouldn't have done the ad spend on TVOD. And I actually wouldn't have put the film on TVOD at all during the tour, because I think um, the revenue from that was so insubstantial compared to what we made on the tour. And it did ding us with talking to domestic distributors who might have then taken on a bigger chunk of rights for the film. They wouldn't because we had already released on TVOD. Um, so I would have done the tour, but tried to make a deal with a distributor for ancillary domestic rights that would have kicked off immediately when the tour was over. Yeah. Um, would you still have... Uh... Would you still have gone with Seed and Spark? Yeah. Would that, would that have undermined um, um I don't interest? think so. Because I, I think to their great, because of their great ignorance and to their own detriment, they still kind of see that as like a niche enough platform that I think we, we could have gotten that one in under the radar. Yeah. So I would have had it on Seed and Spark and done the tour, but not had it on Amazon, iTunes, or Google Play. Um, and... So I think that's the answer for bite me, but, but a second way of asking that question is how am I thinking about my next film? Oh, that, which, that question was coming. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> which, well, which is, which is kind of a corollary, right? Yeah, um, of course. And I think I want to get more radical about even more radical than I've been about thinking about both financing and distribution models. Cause I, I keep coming back to the feeling that the future of filmmaking is in having smaller audiences for films, but in having those people pay more money for the, ex for, for the overall experience of being kind of part of the film's life. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I know Anna, that's, this might be, this is a related question, but did you, were you able to control what you charged for tickets on, um, on the vampire tour? Um, sometimes. Gotcha. What'd you, what'd uh, you charge for that whole 
um, so we, we, we scaled it based on the mark on the town, like in more wealthy places, we charge more money. And in, uh, so it ranged from, I think $7, actually I think Tucson might've been the cheapest place where I think it was $7. <laughs> um, and then I think the most expensive one was I think $35 in Palm Springs. Um, but I, I would say the average was 20. Gotcha. Knowing, knowing what you know now and knowing how meaningful of an experience it was for people, would you have changed that? Um, yes, I would have, I would have charged more. I would have charged 20 most places. And I think, um, people, <laughs> my, my lovely, lovely husband who agreed to come on this insane tour with me and work the merch table every night. Yeah. Um, he, he also took so, care of that spider in the RV. And took which, care of that very terrifying yeah, spider. Yeah, props. Um, so he worked the merch table um, every night at the screening. And, and with some frequency, audience members would come up to him and give him money as like a donation for the tour, which we certainly were not soliciting. Um, but I think they, they often left the evening feeling like they had gotten more than they paid for. Um, so they would try to make up for that. And I think that's also why we sold so much merchandise. I think people felt like that was a way of additionally supporting this thing that they were glad to be at. Um, but yeah, I would have charged more money and I would have, I would have pushed harder on theaters. Cause a lot of times the theaters would tell us that we had to just charge this, like the, the usual ticket amount. And I would have pushed back against them harder on that. And also like, like we did with this, with, with not accepting a deal where we couldn't split revenue. Like I would have gone to an alternative space if I couldn't get a movie theater to agree to let me charge yeah, what we wanted to. Especially especially now that you have have data um, backing up the fact that people are willing to pay more for these experiences. Right. It well, seems right. like exactly. Yeah, particularly put, now. Yeah, it puts you in um it puts you in a position where you have a little bit more leverage to make those kinds of deals and demands of the theaters you work with in the future. And 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 so does everybody. I mean I think like I encourage everybody to take all of the information of what we learned on this tour and and apply it themselves and and use it themselves in making these cases to theaters and yeah to whoever. I love that. What what are you most proud of with Bite Me? Um well I'm really freaking proud of the movie itself. I have to say I, uh, I'm actually re-watching it for the first in slow motion. I'm, I'm having to do a dialogue list, continuity list. We just made our first international sale. And so I'm having to do that, the painstaking process of going to a movie and time coding every line of dialogue, which is um, very slow. But, but so I'm re-watching this film for the first time in, I don't know, nine months or something. And I, I really love it. It's really good. Um, so I'm I'm very proud of the movie, but I'm also really proud of the tour, and I'm like just on a human level and and a, a level as a filmmaker. That tour was the most fun thing I've ever done. It was bananas, but it was so fun and so meaningful and so moving in how it reminded me why we do any of this, um, which is to tell people stories and. Uh, to get to be with them in community as they experienced this thing that we had made was everything. And um, yeah, I'm proud we just said, fuck it. And just like, 
rented an RV and went on this insane adventure. Um, and that it worked and that like people had really meaningful experiences. Yeah. And, and, I, and I have to give a huge shout out, which I haven't done yet to Kiwi Callahan who made the docu-series that you keep referencing about the tour. Um, so like my husband, she agreed, to, I mean, even more, she agreed to move into an RV for three months with me and my husband. Um, and leave her life and leave her husband, her own husband back in New York and, and come on this tour with us and agree to make a 20 minute episode every week, <laughs> nearly killed her. Um, but, and she did such a brilliant job with the yeah, series. Yeah, mad, mad props and respect and thanks to, to her because again, it's, um, I've said it so many times, but it's my favorite thing on the filmmaking internet. And for anybody who hasn't watched it, there's like every every damn episode has just so many less and it's just funny like it's fun and lighthearted and just it's really well crafted like not to like even besides all of the great information and whatnot um yeah and, but, and i think kiwi did such a good job of of like bringing you all on tour with us like getting to meet the funny people that we met and you know yeah that was, that was my favorite part is, is just the interviews with people who came out and had a meaningful experience and were all dressed up in costume. Like yeah. it's, it's so outside of the norm, but you can, you can see this just like visceral sense of joy yeah. in these people and knowing that you helped create that and give them something that they'll likely be talking about for years. Like, yeah, I don't know that any filmmaker can really say that. So yeah, it's it's really really meaningful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what's uh what is the next project? Okay. It's called Hammond Castle and it's a magical realism piece about a 7-month pregnant woman who gets locked overnight in a castle full of famous ghosts. What's a famous ghost? <laughs> well, uh, Walt Disney is one of them, and Greta Garbo is another. And oh, fun! Um, this man, John Hayes Hammond Jr., who built in the 1920s, was a was the heir to a billion dollar fortune in the 1920s, and imported an entire castle from Europe as and reassembled does. it yeah. as one does on this cliff over the sea in uh, in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and. Um, it's it's still there and it's a museum it's a this it's it's one of the more magical places on earth that sounds amazing and it's your i take it it's your location for this thing it is and uh we 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 are very lucky to have the support of the the staff and the leadership there and and they let us um bring a blow-up screen into the great hall of this castle to, for our bite me screening. And we had this sold out screening with almost 200 people in this Gothic castle uh, for bite. That, that, was, that was probably my favorite night of the tour. And they, they lit candles all through the castle. It's just amazing. That's so fun. I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. So I guess like we're, we're coming up on, oh, we're, I think we just passed two hours. Go us. Yeah. Um, this has been really good. So just, I guess just, maybe back to like 20,000 foot view. What are, what are you trying next on the, on the experimental side of forging this new model for both financing and distributing? What are your new hypotheses? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't have my hypotheses formed yet. I feel like I'm in the information gathering phase. Um, 
also coronavirus has changed everything. And so I feel like I now need to continue. I, I'm, I'm in a moment of feeling very exploratory and curious about ideas and I, I don't have my hypotheses formed yet. However, um, as, as a result of the coronavirus, we have been offered an opportunity to record a high quality production um, radio play version of this movie, which is already written. Um, and I'm very interested now in that possibility as a way to build audience even before you have anything. Um, yeah. So is it is it released as a as a podcast or how does how does that work? Um, I think it will be. It, yeah, yeah. If if we do it, I think it will be released probably as a as a podcast series. Um, so we're like figuring out where the episode breaks would be and stuff. Um, but I think that is a very interesting idea. It is, and I feel like maybe it's been like Jim Cummings who's been been saying that for forever it's just like record like if you can't get any attention record your script as a podcast and mm -hmm. i don't to my knowledge i don't know of anybody who's actually gone and done that so i'm really really interested to see because although like normally i would say that like podcast listenership has been exploding which just generally speaking it has but it's interesting during um during times of corona to watch a lot of those metrics fall off because you know apparently or at least on like the assumption there is that people listen when they're commuting and people listen. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and yeah, so a lot of podcasts have seen um, just dips like industry-wide in, in listening. Although I wonder too, like I'm, in terms of enter, I, I feel like I'm not watching or listening to a lot of the things I normally do just because like, like mentally and emotionally, there, there are only certain things I can deal with right now from an entertainment. Like either it has to be about coronavirus and like understanding what's happening, or it has to be the Tiger King and just like completely escapist nonsense. Um, and so like, I have noticed that in my, so I wonder if that's at play too, that just people can't really think about things they normally think about right now. Exactly. Do you think Tiger King would have been the ridiculous popular thing that it is without coronavirus? I mean, yes, yeah. because it's insane and so good. But but I think coronavirus is certainly not not hurting its its yeah. viral yeah. virality. Yeah, it was in a, a, a community I run, which I should invite you to because it's very much about all of these like indie film entrepreneur ideas. Um, we were talking about like right as it was like the end of uh, the end of I want to say February or maybe mid February. Like Facebook was promoting the crap out of a series about pandemics, um, and it seemed like they were trying to you know maybe piggyback off a lot of the news that was coming out of China at the time and using that as like a marketing hook. Uh huh. Now, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's just it's just interesting interesting to watch, um, and like Netflix. It's like going back to Tiger King, like I, I have to imagine that so many of the, or at least some of the great memes out there came directly from their marketing team because they've proven that mm. they, I think it, what was it, Bird Box, where they they had like some really, um, they put a ton of effort behind actually creating a lot of the crazy meme content that made oh. that film go viral, despite the fact that it yeah. was kind of a 
kind of a mediocre film in the end, but that's pretty evil genius level, uh, marketing stuff. Right. But you have to, I like, I find it inspiring Yeah, knowing that you don't have to like create a trailer and poster and like, those are all good places to start. But yeah, when, yeah. when the very nature of the game is, is winning people's attention on the internet and competing with all the other crazy shit that's out there. Like it does take a little bit of thinking outside the box because people yeah. are tuning out all of the traditional, uh, the traditional modes of, um, you know, brands trying to earn their attention. So For it's, sure. it's cool. Yeah. So I guess let's, uh, let's wrap it up. And I'm curious where people can go to find you online and to learn more about like this distribution workshop you talked about and you have, you have coaching and an email list and like all the things. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, it can yeah. all be found in one place, uh, Naomi McDougal Jones.com. Or if nice. that's too hard to remember, Naomi MJ.com will get you to the same place. Oh, nice. That's also, that's also good marketing is just good short links that you can say out loud. Yeah. The, the double last name thing's a little killer on the website. <laughs> yeah. 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 I actually remember looking at the URL when I visited your site and I was like, that's, that's so long. <laughs> um, but yeah, NaomiMJ.com. I love it. Um, anything you want to leave the good people of uh, Filmmaker Freedom Land with? Uh, just make up your own rules because the game is broken. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. For the links and resources mentioned in this interview, as well as the full archive of Filmmaker Freedom episodes, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com. And while you're there, feel free to browse around the Filmmaker Freedom website and check out some of the other rad content, including the weekly newsletter. Every Sunday morning, I send out a variety of the most useful, inspiring, thought-provoking stories I've come across that week, as well as some other cool stuff. It'll help you build your skills, master your psychology, and keep up with this ever-changing business. So if you're ready for an email that you'll actually look forward to each week, just head over to filmfreedomshow.com slash newsletter. Also, if the ideas in this show resonate with you, you're a great candidate for Freedom Fighters, which is my private community just for entrepreneurial indie filmmakers. It's totally free to join, but there is an application process to get in. So if you're interested in surrounding yourself with a group of like-minded entrepreneurial filmmakers who will push you to succeed and help you grow, just go to filmfreedomshow.com community. And lastly, I'd just like to give one more shout out to my friends over at Music Vine for sponsoring this show. The groovy intro and outro music came straight from their library, of course, and there is loads more where that came from. So if you're a discerning filmmaker who needs quality music, just go to musicvine.com and use the code FILMFREEDOM for 25% off your next order. Once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you in the next episode of Filmmaker Freedom. Peace. Peace.